Hello and welcome to In Search of Source, a celebration of the journalists that bring us great content every day. My name is Ryan Gore and I am drinking some green tea, so hopefully my voice sounds fresh as hell. With me we have... I'm Carter Fowler. Uh, I am the founder of Central Sauce and I am polishing off my second glass of iced coffee today because I leave for India to backpack around for two weeks tomorrow and I haven't even finished packing. Oh my god. My name is Ben Carter, I run Hip Hop by the Numbers and I'm currently fighting off the trolls because I got a Lizzo retweet this morning, so I'm a little bit frazzled. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, so seeing as this is the first episode of the podcast, I'm going to give a rundown of what you can kind of expect from the show. So each episode, three members of the Central Source team will bring forward a piece of music journalism for discussion. We'll talk about why we think the piece is great, why journalism is important, and why voices of such people should be considered more, as well as the topics that uh, the piece brings up. Uh, With so much of mainstream music journalism being constantly loaded with shoddy writing and cheap clickbait, the work of content creators of great great perspective and thought-provoking ideas is harshly unappreciated. So that's why we're here, to highlight the people who are saving this genre of journalism. Uh, On today's show, we're going to be looking at articles about tight beats, about how female rappers go way harder than men on their features, and also a bit about Tyler the Creator and his growth as an artist. So, uh, speaking of the pieces, Ben, do you want to jump into what you've brought to us today? Yeah, so I've got a piece from uh, Jaina Jefferson, who wrote this for Vibe in March 2019. And I think, well, this is this is an idea I've had in my head for a really long time, that female rappers come a lot harder on feature verses than male rappers. Now, Jaina's gone into the reasons why, which I think is really important, because not only has she provided examples of when it's happened, uh, like, for example, you know, everyone knows Nicki Minaj on Monster of My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy by Kanye. But I didn't personally know that Kanye actually thought about not putting Nicki on the album. He said it in a 2013 interview uh, because the verse was just that good. And he said it was my male ego and my male pride mm-hmm. that made me think, eh, I don't really want her on this album because she might outshine the rest of us. Now, I've been thinking about this a lot and I've always wondered why, firstly, why there are less female rappers at the top. You know, there's this ridiculous rhetoric that there can only be one successful female rapper. And Jaina goes into the fact that, you know, rappers are pitted against each other. She mentions Lil' Kim and Foxy Brown who began as not necessarily best friends, but they they, they were cordial to each other and it was almost like the industry pitted them against each other. It was like... Well, there can only be one now. Is it Foxy or is it Little Kim? And obviously, we've seen this play out starkly with Cardi B and Nicki Minaj, which is a, yeah. it's a totally constructed beef in my view. I, I think that you know the media has pitted them against each other. And this is why I like to, to, to read, and this is why I like to do this podcast, because I think it was shoddy journalism that created this beef in the first place. I think it was media outlets looking for engagement. And they're like, who can we, what, what negativity can we create? And then they created this, and I think it's ridiculous. Uh, so the thing that I've always been curious about, especially with Nicki Minaj, if we're going to talk about her, is that, She's only ever had one female rapper on a lead song. So she got Foxy Brown onto the track of Queen, which is 2018. So she's been in the game for over 10 years. She's had one female guest uh, on a track that Nicki Minaj is a lead artist. And I've always been curious about this. It's like, why aren't more female rappers getting the shine they deserve, even on male rap tracks? You know, like it's really rare. The only really real artist that was giving female rappers a fair go was Missy Elliott. You know, she had her own label called Goldmind. And uh, it was, I think it was 83% female rap. And she, I think she had eight, 19 or 18 female guest spots during her solo career, which is incredible. 
But Gina brings up a great point, and I think she's 100% right. It's all about ego. Not only is it about the ego of the male rappers, but the female rappers. Now, the way that she uh, orchestrated this point or um, like brought it to light was the fact that when females get on male rap tracks, they absolutely scorch the earth. Now, a great example is Rhapsody on uh, Kendrick Lamar's album. Come on, man. Like That's one of the greatest guest verses you're ever going to hear. She just popped up and just annihilated the whole song. And obviously, Nicki on, uh, on Monster. Um, there were some other ones in here as well. Uh, but <laughs> she also said that she brings up the point that a lot of rap fans say that when a female rapper is doing well or is successful or has got a great guest verse, they say, oh, a male must have written that for her. Now, Jaina does mm-hmm. go into the, the point that some female rappers were receiving bars from male rappers back in the day. Uh, I think Notorious Big wrote for Little Kim. Uh, Jay, she mentions that Jay wrote Foxy Brown's verse on Ain't No, which is it's understandable. I think Foxy was like 16 at the time, and you know Jay-Z curated his first album, and he wanted a, a specific sound. I don't think that precludes or like excludes Foxy Brown from any MC conversation just because she had one verse written for her. But it's like this this narrative that started in the mid-90s. It's like, well, if a female rapper is successful, someone must be writing a rhymes for her. And it's somehow still going on in 2019. You know, Cardi's being attacked for it all the time, so much so that she's had to defend herself. But I honestly just think it's an ego thing. I think that males might be scared to have a female on their track because if they get outwrapped by a female, it's almost like, I don't think it's a masculine thing, but it's it's an ego thing. It's like, oh man, because female rappers, for some reason, as Jaina says in this, it's like they're not seen on the same level as male rappers and they have to work as, you know, three times as hard to get the same amount of shine. And it's, you know, I, I can't believe it, it makes me sad that it's 2019 and we still have to have this conversation. I'm, I'm super excited that Jaina wrote the article but it just really, really frustrates me. And I don't see an end at the moment because, you know, that, that Lizzo retweet I was talking about this morning, it was me saying that, you know, 30% of Lizzo's album is rap. She's a rapper. Regardless of, of what you think, objectively, she's a rapper. And everyone in my yeah. mentions were like, no, nah, she's not a rapper. I'm like, how can you say that? 30% of her album is rap. She raps, she sings. Like, but it's like they don't. They want to push women out of hip hop, and yeah, it just really frustrates me, man. But I'm I'm really happy that Jaina wrote this article because we get to discuss it. Um, but what do you guys think about that? Like, what what are your thoughts on on this whole rhetoric? Yeah, I think the Lizzo and rapping conversation that has been circling on Twitter for so much over the last few weeks is kind of wild because. You can't deny the fact that she is a rapper. Now, that doesn't mean that she only raps. No, no, no. You know, there are plenty of rappers that also sing. Like, just because you're a rapper doesn't mean you can't do anything else. But it's clear that she is a rapper, just like she is a singer, just like she is a flautist, (laughs) Um, just like she is a personality larger than life. Like, she can be many things. It's not an either-or kind of situation. Um, But I do think that women get treated very differently than men just held to different expectations. Um, and just like the way you talk about them and the way the discourse surrounds them is very different than with a man. You never hear people criticize men for only rapping about sex or using Shit. their bodies to sell. Oh my God. But what album is number one right now? You guys know? No idea. Uh, it's the the baby the baby album. You want right? to know? And his entire what? promo yes. for that album was dancing around shirtless. <laughs> that he was like, but you don't see anyone out there being like the baby just uses his body to sell music. <laughs> Does he have you a good body? You don't hear anyone criticizing Does that. The baby I mean, have yeah, he's pretty body? jacked. He's pretty, and you know, he wouldn't uh, be he wouldn't have be shirtless in every single video if that uh, wasn't the case all right, but good. you don't see people criticize it for it no it's just um, ridiculous you know and it also applies on the writing thing like cardi b you can barely even see 
like come across any tweet about Cardi B online that praises her without seeing people criticize her for not writing all of her shit all the time. That's ridiculous. But the only male artist I see that catches the same level of flack for that is Kanye and for a brief period Drake. Um, But even then it's always in less critical tones and no one ever would make it out to be, and you know, it is a little different comparing her with Kanye because Kanye's career is so long at this point, but no one ever imply, even goes so far as to imply that Kanye is successful because of the people that write his songs. Yeah, true. Like they do with Cardi B. That's so true. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard to speak about to great depth as a man who loves hip-hop, which is one reason why I loved this article from Jaina so much, because it educated me on the history, and it really spoke from a female perspective about this thing that everyone knows and is familiar with, but... Um, you just don't have that same amount of context. Yeah, and it's, I think it really is important to point out that we are three men talking about what is a bigger societal issue that yeah. largely concerns women and how um, they are kept at different standards that we are. And one of the things that uh, Jaina said in the article that I really liked, she said, um, women have to work twice as hard and come three times as hard if they're trying to make a statement or impact with, with their words in hip hop, such as life. Um, mm, yeah, that was that was that was yeah. There's a lot of weight behind that, eh? Yeah, <laughs> you could out, feel man. the aggression so that one, and it's so warranted because it's it's sad that it's been going on for so long, but it's been happen. It's happening in every field, not just music, not just hip hop, um, and it's a huge societal issue that we experienced in a different form because music is so in creative fields you kind of don't want to see gender you don't want to see color things like that so um i think it's a much bigger issue essentially and yeah i think that um with women going harder on features when you're in that position in society you kind of gear yourself up to take any chance you can get. Yeah, that's and true. So, um, one my when I think about this topic when I was reading the article, the first verse that jumped to mind was um, No Name on Chance the Rapper's Lost. Mm. And how yes. that is one of my favorite verses of all time. Oh, wow. And, oh, I, I get chill bumps just from yes. hearing you bring it up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If for some reason you haven't heard that song and you're listening to this, like finish this episode then go listen to it because mm. it's incredible but, <laughs> finish um, the episode first though yeah yeah listen to this first make sure but um <clears throat> yeah when you're not given that chance you have to go harder i mean as a minority myself like you you feel like it's the only chance you're gonna get yeah that's a scary thought isn't it i mean as you said we're male and, and Carter and I are white. And so as a white male in this society, man, do I get a lot of privilege. And it's like, we don't, it's hard for us to even understand that feeling. It's like you have to walk so far to get to the door. For us, the door's open. But for some people, like for minorities, you gotta, you got to knock the door down. And so when you do get that opportunity, you're going to run head first into that door and knock it all the way down. And I think it's a bit unfair just on a basic hip-hop level where you hear many uh male rap features and you're like eh man like if you li- if you go and listen to to dj khaled for example you listen to <laughs> father of Assad. if you listen to that whole album there's like a lot of mid male rap verses on there but cardi b comes and she scorches on uh that track with 21 savage like she yeah. annihilates it and every time I hear a female rap verse, it, it always sticks in my head. I can't think of mid-female rap verses. Maybe there's been a couple from Nicki because she's already carved out that part. You know, she's carved out her name in, like, hip-hop history already. But the, mm-hmm. the thing that struck me about the article was going back over time, you know, Jaina could have listed, like... I mean, if you're thinking about, like, some of the greatest male guest verses, there's hundreds thousands of them like you you would never you'd you'd run out of space on the page but there's not a huge amount of female ones like it's just crazy to me that 
we can't think back because and it's just it's explicitly because there's not that many it's just it's kind of rare and i think lauren hill had a lot to do with this you know lauren hill I was listening to the score the other day, and and she, man, she had no right to be rapping that good on that she album. Like, <laughs> oh my good lord! And then she comes and sings, and I don't like. This is just entirely subjective, from uh, my opinion. I have no statistics on this, but I think a lot of male rappers saw that and were terrified by that, and were like, oh man, you know, th- this is a bit scary. Like a woman who sings like that who raps like that, like that, that ends you, that ends your song, like that, that steals the light, and we hear this rhetoric all the time about Renegade with Jay-Z and Eminem, and everyone's like, yeah man, Eminem renegaded Jay, imagine if you get renegaded by a female rapper in this like male-dominated space, uh, it's weak, it's weak, uh, weak thinking from men to think that to be scared of that like you should be uplifting that like it's all hip-hop as ryan said you know gender shouldn't come into it you know you should want the best song possible and i think that the whole genre has suffered because of this because we're just not getting these talented mcs and they're not being put in front of us you know we had to wait basically till 2019 to hear the culmination of that verse uh rhapsody dropped on complexion it's like we had to wait until Eve when she finally got the shine that she deserves. How That's four years, man. And we're in a what people would say is a progressive time. And it took that long. It's just, man, I, I just, yeah, it just makes me sad. I'm glad Jaina wrote this article. Uh, and I'm glad we get to bring it to light. Uh, and I hope that it changes. I'm not sure how it will. But I really, really hope it does. Uh, but yeah, man, it's just a sad situation, really. You know, the point that you guys were making about how, you know, as any kind of disadvantaged group, you know, whether you're a minority or a woman or anything along these lines, um, how sometimes when you get an opportunity, you really feel like you need to take advantage of it because you don't know when the next one is coming. And that made me think of a, a story from that I read in Gucci Mane's autobiography, hey. uh, which Shout I am going to highly recommend to everyone listening. Oh, for real? Best autobiography I've ever read in my life. Oh, I crushed the entire thing in about five days. Nice. It was amazing. I didn't know um, The exists, only one I've ever cool. finished, too. I've started many, and it's the only one I've ever finished. Um, but he, has, he tells the story on there, among many stories of like first meetings, um, he tells a story of when he first met Nicki Minaj and he was backstage at, I think a music video shoot and he was coming off his bus and he describes this tiny little girl with like huge heels and a huge jacket running up to him and saying, Hey, you're Gucci Mane. And he was like, yes, I am. And she's like, I'm Nicki Minaj. And I just figured that you should probably know me because I'm going to be huge. And I'm also your number one fan. I just want you to remember that when I'm, when I'm massive and everyone knows my name, you know, and like that level of confidence and ego. And, you know, I, who knows if she actually believed that, but she saw the opportunity to go and make an impression on Gucci Mane at that point. Um, and she did, and he had a massive impact on helping her launch her career early on, largely because he was so impressed by that first encounter. Um, and, uh, it, it, it really does it, the, the ability to take advantage of those opportunities is, uh, is, is, I guess what sets you apart. Right. And I think, I do think it's interesting how people, um, kind of discuss these uh female artists like how they are as a woman you kind of have to prove that you deserve to be there yeah whereas as a man you kind of have to prove that you don't yeah it's almost like the burden of proof is shifted so like as a woman you have to prove that like you wrote all your stuff and you did this and you grinded but as a man you don't have to prove any of that you other people have to prove that you didn't write it yeah, yeah, no one would have ever didn't questioned make this Drake. all yourself. That's a you know great the point. burden of the burden of proof is just totally inverted, uh, and and it influences almost every kind of every bit of conversation you see about it online. Yeah, that's a good point because like no one would ever would have questioned Drake if Meek Mill had not tweeted that thing. 
If he exactly. had not tweeted his allegations of uh, ghostwriting, then no one would ever have uh, even suggested it. And that's yeah. why it was such a shock to everyone. I feel like if a female, if there was tea was written about a female rapper, I don't think it would be as controversial. Controversial. But um, one thing that's really great that's happening now is um, the industry willing to invest in female rap. They've seen, I guess it's all based on numbers, but they've seen what Meg Thee Stallion's doing, what Cardi B's, B has done and is still doing. And they're finally willing to put money into female rap, which hasn't really been happening before. So that pressure on a female rapper who's up and coming it's slightly lessened by the fact that the industry is a bit more welcome to them now. Those yeah, five yeah. labels that run mainstream hip hop on as adverse to uh, <laughs> women uh, onto their labels. So yeah. Yeah, I think that last quote that she says in the article, where it's you know she says, "While a feature helps with visibility, what keeps them relevant is the magic they make on their own." Beautifully put by Jana, because I don't think it's ever been more true than it is today. When, I think women, especially in the first half of 2019, but even through now, pretty much owned the year. You know, Doja Cat, Tierra Whack, Rico Nasty, mm-hmm. Meg The Stallion, Young M.A., Lizzo, who has yeah. the number one song in the, you know, Rhapsody. Like, all of these artists blew up, and for months at a time, I think, especially earlier, um, you know, like late spring during the summer, all I was seeing online was content from these female artists, and they yeah. were eating their male counterparts alive. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, still a long way to go, but, but, uh, I think with these women in charge, it's only a matter of time. Yeah. Shout out Jaina for that article. That was really timely and relevant and, uh, and then really appreciate the opportunity to talk about that. So thank you. Yep. Shout out to Jaina. Alright, so uh, should we move on to the next article? Cool. So the article I've brought is by Daryl Digger Branch for Hip Hop DX. And um, Daryl's a bit of an OG, so just shout out to Daryl. Yeah, shout out to Daryl. So the article is about essentially music copyright laws and how they might apply to up and coming artists branding their music as type beats. So, um, if you don't know, a type B is when someone might list their their instrumental as, for example, as Daryl said in the article, a Zaytoven type beat. Essentially meaning that this beat was inspired by or uses a style that Zaytoven might use. Um, and he makes an interesting parallel to the ongoing, well, I think it's ongoing, the Robin Thicke versus Marvin Gaye estate case, where um, for the song Blurred Lines, Marvin Gaye's estate is has sued or is suing um, Robin Thicke for similarities in the songs, in one of Marvin Gaye's songs, I forget which one, and uh, Bloodlines. Um, And basically how uh, Pharrell, who produced the Robin Thicke song, was influenced by Marvin Gaye and how influence can be quantified as something that can be copyrighted or even quantified to the point where you could sue someone for being inspired by your song. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting points that the article brings up about how laws affect up-and-coming artists, but also how important they are to protecting the property of these artists. So uh, one thing I wanted to ask is how can you quantify influence and where does influence become in imitation yeah it's an interesting question um i think it's it's so it's so difficult to even make i I, first off i just want to say i think it's a really interesting thought experiment that he brought in this article really thought provoking um and it really it, it goes to show you that sometimes all you need is a simple but great idea and the ability to communicate it concisely and clearly you know not everything needs to be 1500 words yeah, exactly. Um, but it's it's an interesting question you bring up because we're talking about branding these artists around a sound they've made in the past when these artists are also dynamic people who are changing in real time as well. 
So just because it sounds like something they might have made five, ten years ago doesn't mean that it sounds like something that they would make now. Um, this is just kind of the natural evolution. Art, art begets art, inspires art. Um, I, uh, yeah, what, what do you think about that, Ben? I think... Look, I, I, I'm not happy with the blurred line situation. I'm not happy with this at all because I think you're 100% right. Inspiration creates inspiration, creates inspiration. Like, when was the last time you truly heard something entirely unique that you'd never heard before or something that didn't combine elements of something that was popular before? Like, you know, I was in the car with my friends yesterday and we were listening to the radio and this Taylor Swift song came on and I started singing Royals by Lord. And they're like, that's not Royals. And I'm like, what, what is it? And they're like, it's Taylor. And I'm like, did this come out pre or post law, uh, Royals? And they said, post. And I'm like, oh, well, it was clearly inspired by that. But it, it, where, where does the line get drawn? Like how, you know, it, it says in the article that both Pharrell and uh, I think Robin Thicke, I think it says Robin Thicke as well, said that they were inspired by the song. And they lost based on that. I think they did lose it in the end. I think that was the big thing. They lost that case. And that's that's scary to me, man. That's mind-boggling. Like, how can you... Uh, firstly, as Ryan said, how can you even quantify influence? Like, what is the percentage? You know, I'm a hip-hop... I run hip-hop numbers. This is what I do for a freaking living. How the hell are you going to quantify... What is it, 50% influence and above? You get sued? If Ben can't give you a percentage, <laughs> then a percentage does not exist. It's not possible. <laughs> like, how are you going to do that? What's the perc- Like, everything is going to be inspired by everything. Rappers come out and say they've been inspired by it all the time, you know? Look at 808s. What's Kanye just going to sue everyone now? It's I, I, I have a real problem with it. And uh, I like the article a lot because that's true. It's going into this type beat thing now. Mm where you know people are trying to emulate and 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 you know there's this classic thing about uh kanye and just blaze back in the day and who was the rapper that white rapper um and he was around kanye and they said that kanye was like the cut price just blaze so if you couldn't afford a just blaze beat you get a kanye beat and um I think the book he wrote a book and it was called Kanye still owes me three thousand dollars or something like that. Uh, and I yeah, feel like, I actually have that book over here on my shelf. Yeah, see, <laughs> like that's a that's a real that's a real thing. And like so nowadays, I totally understand the type beat thing. It's like, well, I'll just get a Zaytoven beat, but for cheap. But like as Daryl said, where's the line drawn? Like that man, I, it, it opens up a huge can of worms, a huge can of worms. Well, you know, as someone who studied economics in school. It's really obvious to me that a big part of the reason why this tight beats phenomenon even exists is because it's just solving an inadequacy in the marketplace, right? It's hard to not just have your beats be found and easily searchable, but also even if you are an aspiring rapper or just a shithead like me who's looking for an instrumental to freestyle over, (laughs) it's hard to find these kind of beats and know exactly what you're getting into before you click it without these kind of signifiers, you know? If there was a cohesive, easily navigable marketplace with metadata where you could sort all this stuff and see it for what it is, then it wouldn't be necessary, but that doesn't exist. And so even just coming from the other side, you can't even find these beats that easily unless you're a true like SoundCloud gopher who like digs these holes miles underground and finds it. Um, it's just an easy solution on both sides that's solving the problem of there not actually being a marketplace for this kind of thing. Yeah, and talking about what qualifies something to um, to be subject to a copyright law, uh, Daryl brought up the technical term, I guess, probative evidence. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, so... Um, and essentially, probative evidence could be admitting your influence which is what Pharrell did mm-hmm. and by naming your beat a type beat of an artist you're essentially out the gate admitting that so selling that beat going forward creates a really big problem for up-and-coming artists but do you think something can be said for the established artists who feel like they're being imitated well I'll tell you one thing 
it is not the artist who would be deciding to push this case forward, any kind of lawsuit yeah, forward, right? It would be their label. Yeah, so artists and labels don't just sue for infringement all over the place because it still costs money and time to sue, right? Mm-hmm. They sue you because you're making money. Or they sue you because they, de- and, you know, and they think they deserve a cut. Or they sue you because they don't even think you should be making that money in the first place. But most of these guys out here doing these tight beats on YouTube aren't making any money. Or mm. else they would be able to just work with artists directly or shop their beats or send them to other artists they know. They're trying to get that initial traction. So because of that, it's a really, really interesting and thought-provoking experiment. But I think it's a little impractical just because these tight beats are out there from relatively unknown producers who just don't have the assets or clout to be a target for something like that. It'd almost be like Chick-fil-A and you guys might, might not, this analogy might just fall on deaf ears <laughs> cause I'm talking to a, a Brit and an Australian, but Chick-fil-A has some of the best lemonade in the world. And so it'd be like Chick-fil-A suing a 12 year old selling lemonade on the corner because they had a sign that said it's almost as good as Chick-fil-A's. You know, like yeah. none of these tight beat guys are saying that um, it's better than Beethoven's or anything along those lines. They're just like comparing themselves to it in the first place. So, because, you know, I think it's a little impractical, but the far reaching implications of copyright infringement law in this new digital age are just just amazing and so, so interesting and intricate. I just want to like talk about the other side of this, the the artist side, because as a creator and someone who's now got a little bit of a following and is kind of in a unique niche in the market, I've seen others use, firstly, take my stats verbatim um, and second and and cut me out, like crop me out and and use it as their own. But secondly, also see statistical articles pop up uh, that I know were you know, inspired by mm, hip hop numbers, like from people I know, people I've spoken to in real life. And they've said to me, you know, I, it was inspired by you. And I feel a type of way about that. I honestly do. I'm like, I'm, I'm glad that you're doing it. Uh, and I'm glad that it's progressing, but it does hurt a little bit. And the thing that does really hurt is when pages just take your work or they like remix it a little bit. And so I can understand it's definitely going to be a subjective, unique thing to each individual artist, but I could mm-hmm. understand why an artist would feel a way about an artist coming out and saying, I was inspired by and I've tried to emulate this artist. Yeah. You know, Migos said it a lot about the triplet flow. You know, Big Sean was upset about the hashtag flow. We've, we've heard plenty of artists talking about, um, you know, it's not, I don't think that was Big Sean's flow, but anyway. I don't think he you created know, that, but Ben, I remember when you were first starting hip hop numbers and those early times when your content would get reposted on another account. And it used to bother you a lot more then than it does now. And I think I have a hypothesis and I'm interested okay. in whether you think I'm right. Yep. Um, because back then nine times out of 10, anytime you'd see someone reposting that content because your audience was so new at that time, usually those people reposting it would end up getting more engagement on it than you did with the original content, which is what bothered you so much. Um, And nowadays, even if someone co-ops it, they probably won't even get as much um, engagement as you do because you'll have an audience that even if their total followership is larger than yours, yours is primed specifically to love statistical content and mm. theirs is not. Um, and I just don't, you know, I, I, you might just be not, not feeling, not venting to me quite as much, but I just don't hear the um, complaints from you quite as often anymore. And mm. I think it's because when you see it, it, it just doesn't create that same feeling of like missed opportunity or like they're getting more out of it than you did when you're the one who put in the work. Yeah, I mean, things have changed a lot. Like, uh, I was really upset back in the day for that exact reason, but now I do have more followers and and people who are willing to, you know, ride for me and go to bat for me. There was an account called Shady Hip Hop Facts on Instagram who stole my statistics a couple of times and cropped me out. And when I replied, they said, oh, a follower just sent them in and 
And so, and they said, well, we don't know where it came from, but they still didn't credit. And I was with my mm-hmm. friend and, and she said, light them up on Instagram, but I didn't do it. And I was having a conversation with someone in the mentions. And I think, so I think this is the crux of it. And I think this is why these tight beats are popping up because the younger generation don't understand copyright infringement. They don't understand intellectual property because someone replied, uh, Lamau, imagine thinking you own words. And I said, no one owns words. <laughs> like, you know, no oh, one man, owns... there's so much wrong with that. It gets worse. It's a, I said, no one owns words. It's like saying that uh, a painter thinks they own colors. I'm like, a painter owns the way they put those colors together, the combination. And so mm. the person replied, uh, well, when you successfully sue an Instagram account, please let me know. Until then, keep your mouth shut. And it's this idea that unless you're being sued for it, unless you're being given takedown notices, what you're doing isn't wrong. And so, you know, it it gets super messy, but it goes back to what you said, Carter. It's like, it's very expensive to go after these people. Uh, But I do, yeah, I mean, I could understand why an artist would be upset, especially if they aren't the most successful or they created something and it didn't blow, but someone took it. You know, Lizzo Mm -hmm. with that line, um, I just took a DNA test apparently she stole that from a twitter user and then lizzo used that as her like i don't know she put it on merchandise she copyrighted it and stuff and this twitter user had receipts but didn't get anything and that that's got to hurt man that's got to hurt so i can understand that i can understand (laughs) that but it it's it's just different when you're looking up at the person up on the mountain yeah that's different praised for it and it's not you uh, rather than when you're up there and you're looking at these little guys down there who are like eating yeah. scraps based off of it. That's a great um, analogy. I have a question for you guys though, which is that do you think um, this is as much of a issue with production as it is with main artists? Because producers rarely get backed to the same extent by labels that you know the vocal artist, the lead artist does. Um, because their personal brands aren't the money makers like most rappers or vocalists are. Um, you know, I back when I was just starting to get a feel for what is and is not allowed based on copyright on Twitter, sometimes I would share short clips of music videos that I thought were really great. And I didn't think there was a problem with this because everyone knows who it is. It's basically just free promotion for your artist, getting your artist in front of more people who might not have seen it, etc. But I got hit with a couple of copyright claims and forced to take them down, almost all of them from Universal Music Group. Um, and they were all, every single one that I ever got a complaint about, and we now no longer post music videos. I learned my lesson. But every one that we ever got a complaint about was either a Kendrick music video or an Eminem music video. That's it. Mm. And so it's not every single major label artist that uh, is getting backed by their label like this. It's the real cash cows at the top because you have to spend money and resources on people to try to get stuff like this taken down. So do you think we're entering an age with like greater visibility for producers um, where they could possibly receive that kind of same level of backing from labels or is it still just a far cry away? That's a difficult question. Um, it really depends on how much people start to buy into producers. Because you have your Zaytovens, your Metros, your um, Pierres. If that trend continues and grows, then yeah, for sure. If producers start... Um, like Metro does, he collabs with artists and it's a big event when Metro collabs with 21 yeah. Savage or... Or like yeah. with Kenny Beats. Yeah, exactly. With Kenny Beats. Kenny Beats is a great example. And even in the underground, you see of like Kenny Siegel, and um, yeah, it's a big of it's starting to be a bigger event when you have these producers on a song, and people care more, I guess. So mm-hmm. yeah, I can definitely see things going in that direction. Do as... you think we're there yet, though? Not not yet. We're still still a little ways. Not away. yet. I don't think labels are willing to put so much money behind. Uh, Kenny Beats, just Kenny Beats, you know? It has to be Kenny Beats with insert rapper, you know? Um, What do you think, Ben? I have a huge problem with the lack of visibility that producers have in general. You know, I've, I've posted a lot about it and done a lot of statistics on it. Like, 
on average, they have like 90% less social media following. And so Metro Boomin's one example of an artist who actually has a decent social media following is still only like 2.7 million on Twitter. When you compare to, I don't know, someone who's doing a lot more is like 10, like what's Tyler, like nine, 10 million. Mm. Uh, so I think that's one of the reasons is that producers haven't carved out this persona that people are going to get behind and but i honestly do think it is and that that's not i'm not putting that on producers by the way i'm putting that on labels uh i think that labels are the ones that choose who's going to be the persona and then uh cultivate that personality for them or cultivate that in the press and the media i think it will change i think it is going to change firstly because i think beats are becoming more and more important in hip-hop where Mm -hmm. it's Yes, it's still about the rapper who's on the track. Yes, DaBaby is the one that's selling, you know, 145K first week. But I think as uh, we transition more into streaming and more into just grabbing individual songs, we're going to start looking for producers we like rather than rappers we like. And I think it will take time. I think it will take major labels understanding this and then starting to promote the producers on a song rather than the rapper because... I genuinely believe it's production that's fueling the success of a lot of songs yeah. these days. You know, sure, we've got uh, Lizzo, Truth Hurts at number one at the moment. That was Lizzo. We've got Old Town Road by Little Nas X. That was Little Nas X. But I think outside of that, especially, you know, look at ZZ and tracks like that, it's, it's the production. So it will take a while, but I honestly think we're in a little subsection of the genre and a small point where you can get these tight beats off. But I don't think it's going to continue. There's a there's a great account on Twitter called the Rap Emulator. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. And they like post up these texts of like emulating rappers, like rapping like Kanye West or rapping like Jay Z. And it's yeah. like it's funny, you know, it's funny. But you can't make a career out of that. Like you know, yeah. <laughs> maybe one person could as a satire. But that that's not, you know, you're not going to, oh, we're going to sign the next Jay-Z because he sounds exactly like Jay-Z. No one's going to do that. And I honestly think in 10 years' time, no one's going to be doing that for producers either. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they'll be like, well, we have Metro Boomin already. We don't need Metro Boomin type beat. So I think this is a small section in history that will, uh, will peter out pretty soon. Transitionary period. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But... Uh... Yeah, I, I just thought that this was a particularly thought-provoking article from uh, Daryl Branch at Hip Hop DX. Um, even just the conversation we've had from this, I already am going on mental tangents, and so I almost want to cut us off before I get too distracted yeah, <laughs> and we just that, go man. for hours on this. But, man, he really... Uh, you can tell how long he's been in the game and been producing and been... Total legend. Just embedded in it. Total uh, legend. Because these are the thoughts that he's having. You know, everyone out here is just thinking about the fact that tight beats are, are a phenomenon and think about that. He's a, a level of So, yeah, for sure. Shout out to him. Okay, well, uh, I guess to wrap it up, we can go over the piece that I brought uh, today. Um, yes it is um but the piece that i brought is an interview i guess it's technically an interview but it's also much more than that um it's a recent one with tyler the creator on the guardian uh from rebecca nicholson who is the editor-in-chief and uh at vice uk and was the former live features editor at guardian um and, you know, it's billed as an interview, but it's so much more. It's a profile and a deep dive on Tyler's evolutionary arc, kind of using his uh, 2014 ban from the UK as a narrative lens. Um, so the occasion was, you know, she interviewed Tyler in the last couple weeks on his first uh, visit to the UK since that ban was placed. And so it finally got rescinded like five years later. Um, but for anyone listening who isn't familiar with the whole thing of Tyler's ban, you know, how many, Ben, you probably know, how many countries was Tyler banned from at one point? 
Like three or four? Uh, he was, it was definitely three. Was definitely at Australia. least three. It was Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. Uh, okay. It was the UK. So we're talking Ireland. I think it was True, the UK. Yeah. So we're talking like, <laughs> that, what's that, no, six, seven? Yeah, so I guess it's like three countries asterisk. Yeah, um, lots. But so in 2014, Tyler landed in the UK just days before he was supposed to perform at uh, Reading Festival and then a little later Leeds Festival uh, that summer. And then when he went through customs, he was taken into a detention room where they showed him lyrics from his first two albums, Goblin and Bastard, the latter of which he recorded when he was just 18 years old. This, this is just such a joke. Um, and as a result from that, he got banned from the UK for three to five years. The former prime minister, infamous uh, Theresa May, who I'm sure uh, <clears throat> Ryan can give us a little, little context on, um, <laughs> used anti-terrorism legislation to forbid him entry, you know, releasing an official statement that said his work, quote, encourages violence and intolerance of homosexuality and fosters hatred with views that seek to provoke others to terrorist acts. Quite an accusation. Um, and so from there, she kind of goes into, Rebecca, goes into how Tyler and his brand have changed so much, even just in the last couple of years. But kind of at the same time, he hasn't changed all that much. You know, he's still Tyler. It's still the same old Tyler behind it all. He's just gotten a lot better kind of communicating that to people. And uh, I guess he's, as a result, he's not quite as misunderstood on a, large, on a larger scale. You know, to quote Yonkers... Tyler is a fucking walking paradox, right? So I'll go over just like a couple cool things that I, that I saw from the article uh, just because it was a really great interview that I learned a couple of fun little tidbits as a Tyler fan. Um, one thing, he was living with his grandma when he first started making music with, Oz, with Odd Future, which I did not know. Um, apparently also Tyler doesn't drink and never has. And he also claims that he's never even seen cocaine in his life. Uh, allegedly just says that he, quote, doesn't hang around with people like that. Um, and uh, he, uh, there, was, there was one tweet that she pointed at where, to kind of illustrate this whole situation of Tyler always being Tyler, just as much eight years ago as he is now, but now he's just not as misunderstood and now he's able to communicate to people better. Because in 2015, he tweeted... I tried to come out the damn closet like four days ago and no one cared. Ha 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 ha. And no one took him seriously. No one took him at his word. Uh, and then he dropped Flower Boy the next year and everyone was like, oh damn. I think he was serious because he's put enough time into this. Um, and uh, at, at the very end of the piece, he kind of closes with a quote. says, I allow, you know, when he's thinking about his career in retrospect, he says, I allowed some people to just be freer. I mean, I hope I have. I hope I allow people to know that there's no rules and that they can do whatever they want artistically. So I guess a question for you guys, looking back over his arc the last few years, how surprising is it that he's only now been readmitted to the UK? And I am going to open the can of worms. How much do you think the initial ban had to do with the color of his skin? Um, okay. Gosh. So... The ban being three to five years, I think that's so excessive. And I guess this touches on your second question is how Eminem has said far worse, far more consistently with much less of an apology, I guess. Not, not that Tyler has apologised, but with much less growth, less yeah. visible growth and oh, less gosh, excuse. Yeah. Um Every time Tyler was asked about his apparent homophobia in an interview, he would always um, talk about taking the power from certain words. So, And Eminem has never had to justify a thing. <laughs> and has yeah. never... I don't know if he has been banned for any, from any countries, but not That's on the... That's a good the, question. I don't know either. Not, definitely not from the UK. Um, so, uh, hell yeah, it's got to do with the colour of his skin. Um, and seeing as Theresa May is the one who did it, I think, hell, hell yeah, it's got to do with the colour of his skin. Um, <laughs> yeah, she was... Speaking as someone who's over there in the UK. Yes. And has seen... seen and has, uh, yeah, and read up on the things she has done. But 
this isn't the place to get into all that. Yeah. I don't want to go on my soapbox right now, but... <laughs> Someone said that he isn't. Uh, yeah. I haven't heard anything official that he... Now, he, uh, technically, he wasn't... I mean, it's it's just confusing. Look, when it comes down to it, it's racism. It's fucking blatant racism. And I'm going to get a little bit ranty about this because as Ryan says, Eminem toured like six months after Tyler was banned, okay? And there was nothing said about it at all. You know, he was selling out like 80,000 seat arenas and he was rapping everything he's rapped his whole career. This was when... Uh, what was it, around 2014 when Compton? Oh, when did Compton come out? 2015. Doctor Dr. Dre. And what was that track? Um, Medicine um, Man was it? Yeah, it was. And that horrible line. I'm not going to repeat that line on yeah. here. But like, are you freaking kidding yeah. me? Are you kidding me? And you know who toured that same year? Motley Crue toured that same year. And if anyone has read The Dirt by Motley Crue. Give me a frick. These guys have committed violent crimes against women. Okay, they've been in jail for it. And they're fine to tour. But Tyler says, what, three bars in 2011 and he can't tour? No, it's freaking racism. And as someone who lives in Australia, I know that we are a sickeningly racist country. It's all to do with the color of his skin. And it just boils my blood to think that these organizations, I'm going to shout out Collective Shout because they're the ones who petitioned this and they're the ones who got it done, okay? You guys don't hide behind the moral high ground. You don't like the color of his skin. You're threatened by the color of his skin. So just shut up. If you're going to say that about Tyler, then you have to say it about every white artist that comes out here that has said disgusting things on wax. So, yeah, it's racism, man, and... and, (laughs) It just pisses me off. I think he is planning to tour Australia. Uh, I think he's planning to tour Igor out here. Um, I got some engagement on a tweet uh, underneath his tweet saying that, uh, oh, because he said he was touring, and I Mm -hmm. said, oh, maybe Australia's not as racist as I thought. And uh, everyone jumped into my mentions and said, I'm from Australia, we're not racist. I'm like, yes, we freaking are, man. I live here. I know us. I live amongst the whites in Australia. We're very racist. (laughs) And so, yeah, hopefully it's been overturned. But, yeah, man, it's just racism, plain and simple. Well, uh, I guess, I guess pivoting, pivoting from uh, that and back to, like, Tyler himself, um, I wonder if you guys think that Tyler – I mean, Ty, so Tyler definitely underplays his own influence and personal maturation. And I wonder if you guys think that – he really believes it and really underestimates his own influence um, or if he's just kind of being bashful because at certain points in the interview, he says, you know, bringing up whenever people talk about the quote, you know, like massive influence that odd future has, he said, and I'm just a direct quote, people make odd future seem bigger than it actually was. Um, and then, you know, he also talks about how, Back in the day, people knew he wasn't ever homophobic because faggot's just another word. Um, you know, and, and he says all this to kind of downplay the progress or, you know, the journey he's gone through, but also his own influence. And, uh, yeah, I was just wondering whether you guys think it's it's kind of a, an act uh, of, of humility and of bashfulness or whether he actually does... Uh, think or underplay undervalue his own influence relative to what the rest of us think is he just that disconnected from the generation coming up behind him i don't think so i think tyler is self-aware i think there's a bit of sincerity to it i think he just say in the article that um he may have been a bit too close to it to really understand the full impact but mm-hmm. there's no way he could have underestimated like there's no way he could have ignored what our future did I mean, he said that like, people make it out to be bigger than it was. It was huge. It was an absolute <laughs> phenomenon because you had all these unbelievably talented people who had this unbelievable charisma and this attitude that, I guess, embodied so much freedom that people just gravitated to it. And Tyler, he isn't stupid. He knows what he's doing. I think he's just trying to say, 
<clears throat> just trying to say that he has stayed the same throughout this whole time. This public perception yeah. of Tyler the Creator has rarely ever been Tyler the Creator. I think he's just now gaining control of his own narrative. And he's just trying to say, I have been this way the entire time. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's an interesting case with Tyler because if you go back, and I, I did write an article on him and, and went back through his whole discography, he's not a particularly... Yeah, we'll, we'll post the link to that in the podcast episode because that was a great, a great piece, it was very relevant. really interesting to go through it and he's not particularly arrogant. He's a pretty humble guy. If you listen to his lyrics, it's like it's not a lot of flexing. And when he does flex, it's mainly about just cars he likes, like McLarens and stuff. Like he he genuinely likes cars. And I think Tyler's probably fully aware of the influence that he's had. It feels like he might be a little bit uncomfortable with it uh, because, you know, a lot of his early stuff was very dark and, and very, uh, very paranoid, very anxious. So I think that, yeah, yeah, man, he's he's totally aware of the, he he's had such an influence, but he just feels like a very yeah, as I say, humble person, uh, and I don't think he's prone to that. I don't think he's prone to saying I created you. I'm and the stuff with the odd future. I think there must be some extenuating circumstances there. There might be some I don't know some tension or some friction because I think in ten years' time he'll be uh, a lot more vocal about how amazing that collective has been and how influential it's been but at the moment i i feel like it's a bit too close to when they broke up and got back together like it's a bit messy and maybe that's why we're not getting the full story out of his mouth about that particular collective yeah i i still when i when i put igor on i'm still just so surprised (laughs) that that you know it, it just almost seems like a trip you're to think that it, it really is the same person um, because it sounds so different but when you do get to like looking at it and reading his interviews and actually looking at what he's saying um, it is it is largely the sound is different but it is still the same guy behind it like he does resort less to the to the shock rap and stuff just to get people's attention and I think a big part of that, even less so than just in his lyrics, but is in his visuals. You know, the visuals that he had for his early albums, oh, complete like night and day with the visuals that he had with Igor. Yeah, um, just totally different. And visuals are really what lock people's you know heads in. And for many of them, uh, that was probably their first impression of Tyler. I mean, I still remember my first impression of Tyler was watching him eat that cockroach. I was yeah. like. That's the crazy motherfucker who eats cockroaches. And he hung himself at the uh, end. Like. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so it, it is really interesting because it's the same guy behind it all the whole way, but he has gotten a lot... He's changed in how he, in how he communicates it to people. Um, it's really wild to remember that he's only 28. Yeah, yeah he's young, eh? You know, he's been around for so long. Uh, where do you guys think Tyler goes next, musically? It's interesting. And, like, personally, too. Yeah, it's really interesting, because... If you just look at Tyler's albums and go by album by album, there is a distinct, like, shift in terms of just, like, the music he's making uh, production-wise. But if you look at his early interviews, or even any interview where he talks about what he actually listens to, it's not a surprise at all where he's come. Like, you saw the shift on Wolf towards a jazzier sound. And if you just collect all the things he listens to, this eclectic guy, you get things like Cherry Bomb and you get things like Igor. Um, in terms of where he goes next, I think that's a question for Tyler because Tyler just does what Tyler wants. <laughs> and he always has. It's hard to predict. I mean, last year, I don't think anyone would have predicted Igor. No. So. No. no, Tyler just does what he wants. And I think Tyler hates being in a box. Uh, well, we all know Tyler hates being in a box. He's tried to strip away from the box he's been put in for a long while now. Yeah. Maybe it has more to do with where Tyler thinks that people don't want him to go. Yeah, and he's very conscious about what people think. I think Yeah. The one of the main things that inspired Flower Boy was how much he says people hated Cherry Bomb. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw that interview, that big interview he did, 
with um, Joe yeah, Carmichael. Yeah, yeah really, really great awesome. interview. Yeah. Um, everyone, yeah. if you're a fan of Tyler, if you haven't seen In Flower, uh, is it Flower Boy Conversation? I think it's it's, I think it's, oh yeah, that's yeah. what it was. Yeah, an unbelievable interview. So much insight he gives. So open about his influences and so detailed. I love when he talks about the little details of songs and like the feelings he gets when he listens to certain things. It's great. But he did mention that um, how much people really hated Cherry Bomb and how because of that um, reception he wanted to make Flower Boy and now with this great amazing reception he's got for Flower Boy he went and did Eagle which is I mean it's not as far left from say Goblin but it's still a far left from Flower Boy so I don't think it's possible in any way to predict what he's going to do next he might just do another Christmas album who knows (laughs) <laughs> he, he has always done what he wants I'll stick by the fact that Tyler has stayed the same person throughout this entire time he's been famous he just yeah. does what he on, wants <laughs> on that point there was one funny thing from the interview uh, where she talks about how at dinner at one point he, hold, he held the point of a steak <laughs> knife under his chin and stared at her and then put it down and then picked it up again and pressed it right against the flesh of his neck again. He says, that's not funny. And then he said, when he put it back up, he said, yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's the exact same Tyler that was making those videos when he was 19. Uh, he's just starting to separate that a little bit from the art he's making. And I think he's very conscious of how he wants to be perceived and how he wants to be remembered, yes. especially getting older now. I think... If you hear him talk about the early odd future days, he was very much living in that moment, just doing whatever the hell he wanted. But now he's still doing what he wants to do, but he'll kind mm-hmm. of do certain things behind closed doors and only show us what he wants to be remembered for. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Tyler is he is... I, I honestly think, and I've run numbers on this, is he is entirely unique, okay? So he's produced... 98% of his own discography alone with no co-producer and he's the first rapper to go number one with an album he produced and arranged by himself so when you say he's in control of his own narrative he's a hundred percent in control of it and that's an interesting thing because clearly he's conscious of what other people think of him and and his music you know as he said about cherry bomb but it also means that we're just getting him we're not getting anyone else we're not getting any outside influence uh when i say outside influence i mean obviously he is influenced by people around him in society but i mean it's him producing the music it's him arranging the music it's him writing the lyric it's him deciding to you know vocal pitch here and to sing here and to bring playboy cardi in here like it's he's conducting the entire orchestra and it was the same with his music videos it's same with his, you know, uh, their festival. Like, it's just, it's always Tyler. And I don't think there's ever been an artist as successful as Tyler who has that much creative control over his own or her own career. How can you, uh, you know, you say Kanye West, but, like, he co-produces and people might write his rhymes for mm-hmm. him. Like, there's just, yeah, man, Tyler's entirely unique. And I think, personally... Look, I don't know commercially where he's going to go from here. I think this is a high watermark for him. I don't know that he's going to ascend to this level again. I think he'll hover around just below this level. I think this was kind of peak commercial Tyler. But I don't think it's possible to predict where he's going to go next because we couldn't predict Igor and Flower Boy. Um, I mean, how could you? And if you go back over Wolf and Goblin, like they're very deep albums and, and there's storylines to them that still are being figured out by people today. Man, I don't know, man. It's going to be very intricate where he goes to next and I'm just super excited. Like I honestly believe he's one of the this generation's greatest creators. Yeah. Yeah, you saying that kind of made me think maybe his influence even more than sonically or in terms of marketing or branding... His influence really just comes down to inspiring people just to do it yourself. You know, that you can produce it yourself, that you can direct your own music videos, that, you know, and we see that with a great example like Kevin Abstract of Brockhampton. Um, 
I don't think he would have come at it from that total creative, uh, like 360 approach where he directs the videos, you know, and writes songs and has, has that level of creative control without that precedent by Tyler, even just taking the sonics out of it. So it might be less of influence and more of a, ca- a question of inspiration. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Okay. So uh, thank you for everyone to, for joining us and making it this far for well, hearing us talk that means a lot and um yeah so this is the first episode we hope to just improve from here keep growing um just really get this show building really um one thing to mention is that the show does have a rotating cast so you will uh hear different members from the central source collective um bringing their own spin on the podcast. So I don't think you would ever get bored. <laughs> so You never yeah. get bored. You never get bored. Never get bored of Central Source. There you go, guys. There's our tagline. There you go. That's a tagline. That's a good tagline. <laughs> that was great in the moment. All right. Well. All right. Awesome. Uh, signing yeah, up. Signing up. This episode of In Search of Source featured Ryan Gore, Carter Fowler and Ben Carter of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor of the Fifth Element Podcast Network. Music for this show is functioned up by Basti, thanks to Twelve Breakers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Links for Basti, Chill Hop Records, Central Source, the Fifth Element and content covered in this episode can all be found in the description below. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source. 